is never let your emotions dictate how you sing the words that are on the screen as we worship. Rather, let the truth of what is upon that screen feed into your emotions. And so this is the thing. If the words were not truth, and the capital T truth, we would not put them up there. We would not allow them out of love for you and glory to God to be posted on that screen. So if you see words that are coming on there, you don't have to worry too much. You can confidently rest and sing that there are eternal realities that maybe are in those words which you currently cannot see because of the veiledness of your heart or the current temperature of your spiritual passions might be low. But instead of bringing those words down to where you might be, let those words that stand forever bring you up. The words speak about passion and glory to God. They cannot but incite a passion that echoes in your heart. Let them do that. So it's a quick... I made it with about 20 seconds to spare. With that, I want to pray, but right before we do, uh, I want to do one more thing, and that's scripture memory. I'd like very much to just to share with you and lead you just in a real short scripture memory. Would you just repeat after me, and by the saying of it, allow it to just get a little bit more deeper to abide in, in your hearts. The grass withers. Would you say that, please? The flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me as we come before God's word together? Thank you, Father, that our reliance, God, is not upon my words, but your eternal word, Sunday by Sunday, that we open up the book of what you've spoken to us by apostle and prophets, even as we open up the book of the pages of our lives and asking, that they would come into symmetry. That the words that are written on this book and the words that it contains in its truth and power might so imprint themselves onto our lives so that when our lives are read, they would be as letters, as living letters, as epistles sent from you, God, out into the world. Thank you, Father, so much for not only your word, but that you can join it with the power of another eternal force in the person of your Holy Spirit, which you send to us by grace because of the work of the Son of God by your cross, by which you have separated us from our sin and our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And by that power which you have cut away from us, the flesh and the old nature, would you allow us to be clothed with the grace and the joy and the blessedness of the new, for we say these things, God, in Christ Jesus' name. I'd like to dive right into the text, and would you turn with me, if you've not already done so, to First Peter, the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2. And I want to start right from verse 22, which has the dominant imperative, the command of this passage. Everything is focusing on this command. And this is the command in verse 22. And now that you have purified yourselves by obedience or by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, meaning a genuine, authentic, unfeigned, unhypocritical love for your brothers and sisters. Then, love, this is the command, love one another deeply from the heart. So this word that dominates our passage for this morning is this word, love. And the reason why that that's a hard word, even though it's one of the easiest words to tackle, is because that word has been so used and abused in our culture that we scarcely know what it means anymore. The Greeks had four different words to try and get at what love means. They cared enough about it to talk about eros, philia, storge, and agape. They divided it up. We have just the one word, love, by which we use to define and express our most profound emotions for those that we most care about in the world. And we have that one word with which we also define our affection for Ben and Jerry's ice cream and baseball and you too. I love uh, 24. You know, I, I love uh, Chunky Monkey ice cream. That word gets so threadbare and overused. And so... This word here, when it says love one another deeply, it's all that we got to go on. 
and we would save it, we would rescue it from its secular context and put it back into a biblical framework to inform the proper hearing in our minds of the echoes of that, what that word love means. And so rampant is a confusion about love that I, kind of struck me afresh because I don't get a lot of time to spend with unbelievers because the majority of my life is spent in church. And I was preaching at a, at a wedding uh, not too long ago where the majority of people, they were all unbelievers. So I got into a number of, I, I was preaching at that wedding and then afterwards during the reception time, I got to, into a number, more conversations with more unbelievers than I had in a long time for more extended time. And I had spoken about in that sermon, I quoted 1 Corinthians 13. And I said, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love, this is what love is. And as I was making my way through the crowd in the reception hall, a person grabbed me and she said, what you said about love was so beautiful. How do, you, how do you even think of stuff like that, you know? And then at the dinner table, I'm eating with these people, and somebody says, yeah, you know, I remember what you said. Yeah, love is patient. Love is kind. That, that is what love is, isn't it? And I, I realized, welcome this to post-biblical, post-Christian USA. It's true. I just assumed that no matter how unchurched you are, you would know 1 Corinthians 13. And yet they didn't. And so the best that people can do without the deductive, didactic teaching of the words of Christ and his apostles about what love is and the nature of love, the creator and author of love, is to inductively try and figure out what love is from their lives. And the twisted, distorted picture of what remains is a very dim picture and echo of what God first had in mind, what he means when he says, I love It is this form of love that God commands us to have. It is what Peter is trying to get at when God is speaking to him, to us to say, and therefore have sincere love, a deep love. Love one another deeply from the heart. From the heart. And the thing is with Peter, he does not spend a lot of time defining this love. He will talk a little bit about it more in the first verse of chapter 2, but he speaks very little about it. And part of the reason why is because Peter assumes that to know God means to know love already, intuitively. He says here in the beginning of this verse, now, meaning now that you are saved, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Purified, that word is from the hagi, hagi idzo, that's, is, that's the verb form of hagias, which means that where we get our word from holy from. It means now that you have sanctified, if I can twist up the English language, now that you've sanctified yourself, now that you've become, now that you've gotten yourself saved, you know, you've just kind of, you know, you've, you have obeyed, you've heard the gospel, and you obeyed the truth. Somebody said, you want to receive Jesus, something flung up in your heart and said, yes. So you obeyed, you didn't turn away, you didn't run away, you ran toward the cross, and now that you have purified yourself now by obedience to the truth, you have a sincere love already. It has been implanted, embedded, reworked into the DNA, ground up of your existence. Because it means that on either side of faith is a relationship of love to God and then on the other side, a relationship of love to people. I was 17 when I got saved. Honestly, I don't know what would have happened if I didn't get saved. I surely wouldn't be here right now. I mean, obviously, but I don't know where I would be right now and what state my life and what my conception of life and love would be right now. How radically different if God had not entered into my life by a sovereign grace at 17. But two things happened at that retreat which I did not expect, which I was stunned by. And the first was the meeting the most important event of my life, meeting for the first time God in Christ Jesus. And then I knelt and I prayed my first sincere prayer. I prayed in church before, mimicking the prayers that the words that I heard from my parents. 
But my first sincere prayer was really simple, and I think I've shared it before with you before. My first real words to God. Nobody coached me, nobody told me, nobody even made me repeat a prayer after them. But after salvation, upon conversion, after the Holy Spirit entered my life, the first words out of my mouth were, I love you, God. The second word was, I'm sorry, because I didn't know the words of repentance. I didn't know how to speak about repentance. I just said, I'm sorry. When I got up from my conversion and I had been made new, I'd been given the new birth that Peter has been talking about. I'd been born literally again in a more significant birth than even my first birth. I walked in the days of the glory of God around that room knocking about. And the first word that I said to any human being, the first word I said in the start of my new life in God, in Christ Jesus, was I love you to a human being. It is the first time I ever were uttered the words, I love you, to a man, to a male. And therefore, it must be appended with, I love you, man. I love you, man. You know, you can't, you dare not, you know. And at the same time, when I, when I was preparing for the sermon, I was trying to recall, honestly, earnestly, I, I, I was trying to recall, when did I say, that was my first word that I said, I love you to this, the per, this my best friend who got, I got saved with. I was thinking, when have I said the words, I love you before? I can't remember. I don't know that there wasn't. But I seriously, up until age 17, I can't remember ever saying the words, I love you to male, female, anybody. My family, we learned to say, I love you after I got saved, after I became a Christian. But I learned to say I love you because of Christ. And nobody, again, coached me, but it was the instinctive impulse of a heart that understood that I was loved by God. The instinctive reflex was to say back to somebody, I love you. And I, I think from there, I just kept on saying it. Once you are saved, purified, by obedience to the truth, meaning the truth of the gospel, there is a, you have already a sincere love. You have a sincere love. And please understand that from this word. No matter how unloving you consider yourself, how you feel like you fall short in sincere and deep love, you have a sincere love. It may be covered, it may be buried, it may be atrophied, but a sincere love from God as source, you already have. It is in your possession to be released. And that is the next command. It, it is only from there that the, it can be commanded. Love one another deeply from the heart. What Peter now is primarily concerned from, concerned about is not to define the nature of this love as much as he wants to know where it comes from. In other words, what is the dynamics? This, you scarcely talk about this in the world. What are the dynamics, the mechanics by which this love that comes deeply from the heart Where does that love come from? What is its source? And what are the spiritual mechanics of how that operates? If you just move one verse up, this is where he ends right before this command. He says, in the preceding verse in 21, through him, meaning Christ Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. So he's talking about the moving and the relocation of your faith and hope, your trust and treasure, which was rooted in everything in this world, uprooted, transplanted, and put in God, so that your faith and hope are in God. So faith, hope, and then the command to love. I have an old professor who is one of the best uh, New Testament scholars that I know. And he has written an entire biblical theology around those three biblical concepts, faith, hope, and love. And he believes that when it says in 1 Corinthians that these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. He believes that Paul is not only talking about in terms of importance, that, the great, that love is the greatest, of the most important of faith, hope, and love. But he thinks he, Paul, also means greatest in the terms of what is given rise to what, meaning faith, gives rise to hope, and hope 
then therefore gives rise to love. So therefore, if you trust God, you will have a strong hope. And if you have a strong hope, you'll have a rich love. If that's a foreign thought to you, it's because, again, the mechanics of love are never talked about in the world, but they are talked about everywhere in Scripture. Hope as a ground and a source, as a motivation, as a propulsive force to force out love is the biblical logic, and here's how it operates. Let me talk about, the, uh, let me talk about it in the negative before uh, I'll let the Bible talk about the positive. Love in the pragmatics of this world that lives on prenuptial agreements and those kinds of things. Love operates in this way in this world. That when you have met your own needs and you yourself are satisfied and have what you feel like you want and what you need, then out of excess, you can care then for somebody else. If you have plenty of time and you're not in a rush, you can be patient with the driver that cuts you off. But only if you have your own supply met. If you have a house that you want and a car and clothing and finances that you want, you will not be so envious of the Joneses next door who have a bigger house and a better car. But only if you have your own needs. So it is uh, look out for number one first. And the way the book of James talks about love and talks about the negative aspect of it and asks what causes quarrels and fights before between you. It's because you desire and you envy and you cannot get it. So then you quarrel and fight somebody else to get it. That is this world. And I've seen a real interesting trend in movies of late. Every time that I see a movie now or trailers for movies, it is uh, just a, a series of movies that have as their theme the apocalypse as if they know, as if the world knows what the apocalypse is going to be like. But there is movie after movie, 2012, 9, I don't think there's a bunch of numbers in, the, in there, The Road, this new one coming there You can just count. They're just movie after movie, and they all have as their theme the end of the world, because they're all tapping into this dread that we are all currently experiencing feeling that as our precious fluids that keep our entire Western economy and world going are drying up, as the environment is not as stable and predictable as once we thought, we are wondering about the end of things. And these apocalyptic scenarios always tie into this kind of thing where if we ever considered ourselves a generous people or even a generous nation, when the end of the world happens and everything that we've ever relied upon, all the malls have been destroyed and tidal waves have just, have just flooded over you know, harvest fields and there's such a short supply of grain and not talking about even fuel and there's not enough of anything. There is no love. Rather, there is, I will fight, I will quarrel, I will kill anyone that gets in my way to grab what I need. There's a real human creaturely dynamic that says, since I cannot create anything like God can, I am very dependent on external sources to care for me. And if I'm not cared for, then I get so afraid and so anxious and so depressed and despairing, I do not have the heart to care for those around me, even though they may need care. I need so much. How can I possibly give? anything. And what is made worse into the people that Peter is writing to is that these people do not have anything right now. They've become persecuted. Their goods and homes have been taken away. And so if they cannot say, because God has blessed me so much right now, how can I possibly love, in other words, give and care of my limited resources to another person? And Peter's answer to that is hope. It is in one word called hope. Meaning that if you have faith, if you trust God, then take that faith directed toward the future of your life, which you are every second approaching. If you trust God, trust God for the next moment. And trust God for the next day, and the next week, and the next month, and the next year. And keep trusting that God who is good 
always, eternally, will be good to you tomorrow and will be good to you and will care for you and will provide for you. This dynamic is so strong. It is built into the weft and the weave of the way that we are created again. Not being the creator, not being people who divinely can just take nothing and make something by the word of our mouth, but who are dependent upon the words that come from the mouth of another source. I can illustrate this, I think, even to anybody, believer or non-believer through a movie which for me illustrated this dynamic more clearly than any other movie I've seen. I can't remember when it was. I was at Regent College in Vancouver and I heard about this movie and I tried to get everybody around me to to come. I tried to get, not everybody, anybody actually, to to come and see this movie with me and nobody would because every single time I said, it sounds like this great movie and, and, you know, come and and watch it with me, come and watch it with me. And at that time it was unthinkable that I would go alone. So I come on trying to get somebody to come and watch this movie with me and the universal reaction I always got back was, what's the Shawshank? What 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 what, even, what is this movie about? What is this? what's the Shawshank? I don't even understand the, the, what the movie's going to be about. And so nobody went to go see the movie with me. I ended up not seeing it, and I knew that a great movie had come and gone. And I only knew the plot of this movie until uh, I did. I mean, I only knew it when when a friend of mine was preaching a message on hope, and used that mo- movie as an illustration and blew from me the entire movie. Who has not? Who does not know the plot of Shawshank Redemption here? In this, okay, all right. Then, I'm, you have, if you not raise your hand, or you give me a free pass, because I don't want to do this to you, because I was upset actually. It's the person who ruined the movie for me. It's the person told me the end of the movie. It is a little bit like saying, like right before you watch Sixth Sense, he's a, he's dead. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the whole movie. I'm just kind of watching, thinking, okay, well, I know why. I know why. Because it's, it's a movie set, you all know, he's set in prison with this guy played by Morgan Freeman, who is awesome. Who this guy read who cannot figure out for the life of him this other character named Andy DeFresne, who when he is beaten and when he is persecuted and slandered and reviled, he does not pay back in kind, but accepts it with a kind of a serenity, even a grace. And he doesn't only care about himself as everybody in the big house does. Everybody watches their back and looks out for number one, but not Andy DeFresne. When he gets a job that will take him outside for a while, he brings other people around. When he is rewarded with beers, which are a rare, luxurious ambrosia in prison, he not, doesn't just hoard it for himself. He shares it with everybody. And Red cannot figure out what is the secret of Andy DeFresne. <laughs> well, I know. It's not a secret because my friend told me. And still, it was with a pretty powerful impact at the end of the movie where you find out what allowed him such love and care for his fellow prison inmates was because he knew he did not share their fate. Right or wrong, he had been secretly digging, bit by bit, a hole from his chamber out through the prison wall, and there there was freedom. And every day brought him that much closer the day that he would escape this prison. And that hope, which he believed in with all that he had, allowed him to live differently than anybody else around him. We talked about how hope feeds into a holiness. So you do not play the same kind of games, do not fall into the same temptations, do not allow yourself to be corrupted the same way as everybody else who considers this world their home and their identity rooted here. So Peter's biblical mindset as God's words coming through him is that hope leads to holiness. And now he extends it here saying hope leads to love. If you are looking down the barrel of a miserable future where you feel like that everything is being crushed and diminished and you are only getting more and more weaker and more sad and you are not you are losing things and getting nothing in return and nothing has come your way and nobody's giving you anything, you will become the most miserable and miserly person and you will not give generously to anybody around you. It is a dynamic that inhabits and structures the architecture of every single human heart. 
if you believe, in other words, AKA faith, if you believe that God is good and he is generous and he is kind and he has a future not to harm you, as if you would ever want to harm his son or his daughter, but a future to prosper you. And that God is not a God of punishment and curse for the things you've done, but a God who erases that in his son and then gives you blessing and meets you with grace. And this incredible word that in the Greek sounds a lot like Christ is Christos. It's one letter apart. It means kindness. It's many a New Testament word, uh, author's favorite word. The kindness of God. If you can believe in that, not just that you've received it in the past, but you will receive it in the future and you will be given grace. A hope starts to open up into your life by which not only you travel along, but it begins to extend horizontally into care, into love. Here it says, a deep love for one another from the heart. If you are saying, I have because I've been saved in Christ, I cannot have but a faith in God. I can't but believe in Him. Even if I try not to believe in Him, someplace there is a spirit born again instinct that says that God is good and I don't, it, no matter what has happened in my life, no matter who says anything to the contrary, I believe that God is good and I have a faith that God will be good to me in the future. But if you're saying that hope, what you are defining for me right now, biblically called hope, if you're thinking right now, even as you listen to me, that that is at a very low ember, as again, God knows who he has created in you. In the Proverbs, it talks about how a hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And some of you are, have deferred a hope again and again and said, okay, maybe next week, next month, next year, and again, it hasn't happened. And you're tired of hoping. You're tired of trusting. And so you still hope because you cannot help it because you are a Christian, because God has recreated you. But that hope is at a very low ember. All I need from you this morning is the desire for you to say, but I would take that little hope that I have And I would nurse it and cultivate it to grow stronger and richer and more consistent and deeper and brighter. And I I pray that you would be responding to me right now. If you are telling me that I need to have a hope, I need to gain, if I don't have it, I need to gain it. If it's weak, I need to grow it. And if you are telling me that I need to have this hope, not just for my sake, and my happiness, but for the sake of everybody around me. So they don't have to put up with a grumbling person who just just can't see any good in tomorrow, but so that they can be a part of the life of, be in relationship with somebody who sees a brightness in the future and is therefore giving hope, is giving care out of that hope. Well then, yes. I know it's a long sentence to track with me on, but then I hope at the end of that you would say, yes, then I would like to cultivate that hope. How do I do that? Because it doesn't seem to just fall out of the sky. Sometimes it does, but that's so erratic. You know what I mean? Like something comes through unexpectedly and all of a sudden your hope and your faith starts to rise. But that's a very erratic thing, very cyclical and very unpredictable, I feel. And it's not the basis that Peter gives us here. Would you look into the word of God for the source and the ground, the basis upon which God builds our hope? He says that there is a faith and hope that are to be put in, that are put in God, and therefore that we should love. And then the ground is in this clause in verse 23 that says, for or because of. You have been born again, not of perishable seed. Those are those words again. But of imperishable. And what is this imperishable seed of which I've been born again, this enduring eternal reality within me? It is through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. But the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of our Lord stands forever. 
the hope which needs to remain consistent and strong no matter the good times or bad because love needs to be built upon that hope. That hope is built upon an enduring reality which God places upon, which is the word of God. And so there is so much fluctuation in this world. And I I think you all know this. I've spoken about this a number of times. I've become such a news junkie and I'm constantly watching news and and I, all the the left and the right and the conservatives and the liberals republicans democrats and you know uh, george wills and then george stephanopoulos and with that wonderful round table and and uh and free i'm just i just i'm soaking all this up and there's so much debate it seems like there is no firm ground upon the words of men there's just a constant yakking and debating and argument And there needs to be some fixed place, some voice that can speak outside of the realm of mere men's authority that comes to us that does not pass with decades or political party or seasons and fashions of thought. A word that comes to us from eternity, that grounds us in eternity. There needs to be a finality by which there is spoken a thus saith the Lord. What we have contained in this book is this enduring eternal reality, and you know it's 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 for every single person. And I, I you know I remember when I struggled with is this the word of God? I mean, is this God's word? I mean, I believed it innocently as a young Christian, and then I soon came to seriously have my serious doubts whether this was the eternal word of God, and so I struggled and wrestled with it for about a few years. And I was looking into all these different things, text criticism and canon history and, and debating with people who stood on the other side of me who believed that this was not the word of God, but the words of man, which God, you know, which testified to God and had countless discussions with them. And in the midst of my struggle, wondering if this was God's word, somebody said something to me which was the most helpful and most comforting thing that I've ever heard in this respect. A real good friend of mine, and he said, and I, I, as I was kind of dis, disburdening my heart and telling him about my struggle, about what is the nature, what do we, what do we have here, contained in this ordinary paper, and there are billions or, or millions and millions of copies of this book, and it's not just this holy thing. I mean, what is this thing? And I was saying, saying about how so much of what I've been hearing is that this is not the word of God. And my friend told me, and he looked at me with an extreme calm, which I envied. And he said, Eddie, you have to understand something. This has been going on for centuries, upon centuries. And so you have to understand the Word of God is like this eternal, vast, huge, almighty boulder. This incredible rock that just stands. And he says, on one side are the liberals who try to push it over and say, it's just, you know, some people wrote it and there's other books that are holy books and they try to push over the word of God. And there are the conservatives on the other side who try to take their little toothpick and they try to prop up the word of God and keep it from falling. But the word of God is what it is. It has been something given to us, divine, eternal, that endures because of its eternality. And it is eternal because it it comes from the mouth of the immortal God. This was my my first Bible. I bought this with my own money. It cost me 23 or 24 bucks at uh, some Christian life uh, bookstore. And I I can't tell you, I was a, a one or two year old Christian. I was shocked that you had to buy a Bible. I thought it made no sense to me that you can go to any cheap dive and get a Bible for free, but the church would not just give you Bibles. And, you know, and so, but I, I bought this Bible with my own hard-earned money. And uh, from preparing for the sermon, it was like meeting up with an old friend whose face uh, I knew well. There's not a page that's not scroll, except for the study notes, which are not divine, you know. 
that's just not just that's not scrawled over with all kinds of ink. And I was delighted to see this. That this is now this again. This takes me back maybe close to two decades, something like that. Uh, and I wrote at the beginning of First Peter. I wrote question: How do Christians live in the world? Answer: First Peter. This is my old old notes from two decades back. This word of God is what is meant to be the supporting power that grounds and stabilizes and grows our hope in God, in Christ Jesus. If you feel like my hope is not very bright, my hope flickers and fades and goes and seems to ride waves of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare would say. It's because it is grounded not upon the word of God as it was always meant to be. This word in Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions, that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15.4, let me read that to you one more time. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. In other words, Isaiah wrote for you. Jeremiah and the psalmist are writing for you. And they were writing that by the steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It is a biblically inviolable dynamic. You cannot have a strong and bright hope with a weak grounding in the scriptures for the very means by which God means to stabilize, to anchor your hope, is by all the promises of God that are given everywhere in scripture. If we had time, I would, I would look back into the scriptures that Peter is already quoting from here. He's, he's quoting from different places. He's quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from the psalmist. And I'll say this real quick about the quotations that he selects here. When you go, when you go, if, you, if you have time, go back to Isaiah 40. Go back to Psalm 34, from which is coming these words that Peter's lifting out. And I promise you, I wasn't there, but I promise you, Peter did not have a scroll on one side of his desk and a concordance and another uh, you know, Torah, the Old Testament, on the other side, flipping through, thinking, what, what is he going to put into here? These words were already so deeply embedded in his heart. Isaiah 40 was already in his mind, upon his mouth, inside of him. So were the Psalms, that they were already they were just flowing out of him, woven in with the New Testament that God was writing through him. And if you were to go back to Isaiah 40, if you go back to Psalm 34, the context of those texts are times of trouble. Times of trouble are what the Word of God was written for so that when you feel like there, I'm in a time of darkness, I'm in a time of emptiness, I'm in a time of pain. And if my hope is going to be built upon fullness and my earthly joys, my earthly prospects, my hope is going to be small. And if what you're telling me then is that love is built on hope, I will not love very well. I will not love very deeply. And the most I can possibly generate out of this time of emptiness is a hypocritical, insincere, feigned love, which is not real. There is in times of difficulty and times of trouble. What God means to drop into the wounds of those times is that they would be an open space, a hollow, for the word of God to come deeply into you so that your hope may be deep and so your love may be deep. That's the way it works. That's the logic of the New Testament. Peter speaks this way. James speaks this way. Paul speaks this way. And so he says here in these concluding verses, and this word was preached to you, therefore rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy. And you understand what he's saying there. He's saying you don't need those things. God is taking care of you and you know that because of the word of God and the promises of God and the word of God which speaks about the faithfulness of God at all times. If you can put your hope in his word, then you don't need to slander another person. You don't need deceit to try and get ahead. You don't need to be hypocritical or envious because you have believed on God and your trust in him is strong. So he says, Therefore, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. 
now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Please, let nobody here say that where I am in my hope and in my faith and in my love is where I will remain. Please, please never, never speak that way before God and before his word. That I'm just, this is just where I am. I don't know if I'll ever really be passionate about God, a passionate lover of people. These words say that by spiritual milk that you may grow. You may grow. And you may say that, but it says for like newborn babies, I'm not a newborn Christian anymore. It's a metaphor like newborn babies crave milk. It's not saying that you have to be a newborn Christian. The way that a newborn baby is, as many of you know, the way that they cry out for milk, look at that desire and take that and start drinking in the word of God. Consume it, because it says here, you've tasted that the Lord is good. Let me, let me just say this really quick. The way that, that it speaks about, the way that if you think that I, I know some things about the word of God, and yet my hope has not been strengthened, and I don't feel like my love is growing. When it says the word of God, and compares it to a spiritual milk, when it talks about tasting the word of God, it means that you cannot just study it. You cannot casually know it and expect for it to yield the kind of power that is writing, written about here. It must be drunk in. You must get it inside of you. As you've tasted that the Lord is good, now crave and drink the spiritual milk. Get it inside of you so it can nourish you and grow you, become absorbed into your being, metabolized into your makeup of who you are. And So let me give you three words of application. The way that you do this is by, I'm going to give you Martin Luther's three, uh, his trifecta for the Christian life. And I'm going to apply it here to reading of God's word. He said three things are extremely useful for the Christian life. Referred to it by its old Latin names. Meditatio, oratio, temptatio. Meditation, that first, it's, it's what it sounds like. To take in the word of God deeply. To breathe it in. And you can tell when the word of God has been deeply imbibed by you so that it is not just floating around the periphery of your mind as accumulated information like you've, like you've surfed it, but you've drunk it and it's become part of who you are inside of you so that it can build up your hope and that therefore build up your love. You can tell by how deeply you've drunk of it about how readily it comes out of you. I listen to some prayers and the prayers that are prayed. Like Peter, the words of Scripture start to just come. I talked about that, that song that we sing. Some, some, of the, some of these songwriters, when they are writing these songs that, from the heart, and you can tell so much emotion, so much passion went into the writing of these songs that we sing. I also don't think that they were sitting there with Bibles. I think they had already done that. And just it's a regular part of their life. And as the word of God indwells, has been drunk inside of their being, now it is coming out. And when it comes out of them in their giftings, in their passion, it erupts in song. And it is a gift to the entire church. I'm not going to be like a cop who goes around listening to your prayers and thinking, is that scriptural prayer or not? This is for yourself to test. How deeply are the words of God are coming inside of you? And this is also for a word of challenge to you. As you meditate on the word of God, let it come out of you. Start to start weaving them into, start praying back the scriptures. Let, let them come out of you as a means of drafting in an air flow inside of you. But they've got to come in. They've got to have some form of meditatio. And so I'm going to quote to you, uh, I've got to take it, lift it from the language that's written. George Steiner is one of the most intelligent scholars I have ever read in my entire life. He's not a Christian, but he writes right to the point of this in language which I can't imitate. And so let me just read his language here. What we know by heart becomes an agency in our consciousness. That's, the, that's a whole full paragraph, but it's with him, every phrase you could un, unfold in a page. What we know by heart becomes an agency in our consciousness, a pacemaker in the growth and vital complication of our identity. What is committed to memory and susceptible of recall constitutes the ballast of the self. The pressures of political exaction, the detergent tide of social conformity cannot 
tear it from us in solitude, public or private. The poem remembered, the score played inside of us are the custodians and remembrancers of what is resistant, of what must be kept inviolate in our psyches. That is some rich language. It's pretty sophisticated language. So I wrote a little ditty. Readers become what you read because in the end, you are what you eat. I don't, I don't know if that helps you at all. If, if all that the highfalutin language, readers become what you read because in the end, you are what you eat. It's true. Whatever you intake and what is the sum of what you meditate on and what you give your mind to and what you read and what you watch and what you listen to, they will form the basis, the ballast, let me go back to his language, the ballast of your identity. They will form the aspect of your hope. They will be the anchor, whether placed in good places or bad, rich soil or soil that is drying up and fading away. And so meditatio is necessary. Let me say this real quick, the last, the second two quickly. Oratio is the Latin word for prayer. And so let me just quote Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling. There's that word again. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. If the word of God upon your reading is not conjoined with prayer before God, it will be like the sun blasting upon a blind man. Your eyes need to be unveiled and opened to be able to see what is wondrous in the word of God. And that cannot come by your own power. So there must be the word of God, a meditation upon it, the intake of it. It must be done prayerfully. And the last one, simply, is when Luther uses the word temptatio. Is where we get our English word temptation. It is probably to use a familiar word in his German, would be anfechtung, which means pain. Opportunities to drink deeply of the Word of God come through meditation. They must be done prayerfully. And if you are in a moment of difficulty, of trial, there are entire scores of Scripture which open up and get drunk in through your desperate needs. If you are at a point of desperation, please do not leave it there. Please do not go to some kind of illusory or fading, falling flower or withering grass in which to graze and try and get something which will get you through the difficult moment. Go to something that is deep and nourishing, enduring. will fix yourself on eternal hopes. Go to the Word of God. And if anybody's in a place of difficulty and a place of need and a place of desperation, I did not start reading, for real, books like Isaiah, Job, the Psalms, Second Corinthians, until I went through seasons of suffering. I highly commend them to you. Let the Word of God, this is what you can do. When you say, how do I love, I say hope. If you say, how do I hope? Scriptures say, go back to the Word of God. Let it be a steady part of what you take in. So as we close in prayer, let me read the start of the Psalms. This is the very beginning of the Psalms. Blessed, that word, happy. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, meaning the word of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. And his leaf does not wither. I think it's just, that's a tailor-made image, tailor-made illustration for First Peter. Do you see that? If you can get your roots into the flowing living waters of the word of God, your hope will strengthen there will be hope that rises up into your trunk and it will bear the fruit of love. It's, it's, it's a tailor-made biblical image for that. To the degree that your roots are not planted in or planted in nothing deeper than things of this world, they will wither, they will fall, they will fade. We've all experienced that. 
I'm just going to prayer. I'd like to just lead us into a time of assessing where we stand before the Word of God and what place the Word of God has in our lives. And do you find yourself in this curious cycle over your life where your love seems to radically fluctuate up and down? And you realize because, call it being grumpy at times or just out of sorts, but your love seems to go up and down and the way that you treat people goes up and down because your hope and the way that you look at your own personal future goes up and down. And the desire of every Christian to say, I would not have this be, not for me or for the ones I love. I would ground my hope in sources eternal and enduring. And like the daily bread which I eat, more, even more so, I would live by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. And more important to me than my food is the words that he would speak to me, this living word, by this living God today and then the next day and then the next. Words of kindness and grace and power and hope. Words that tell me just how much he loves me and just how much I can count on him to take care of me. And so to free me and cut away from my life the anxieties that deaden my love and restrain my freedom to care and be generous with those around me. Jesus, when we speak of how you define love as patient and kind and long-suffering, always trusting, always protecting, always hoping, We know that, God, that's not talking firstly of our love. You're talking firstly about yours. You are always patient. You are always kind. You always want our best. You are long-suffering. You always protect. You always trust. You always hope. You always persevere. And so may that love by which we have been loved come into more concrete and sharper focus through the word by which you speak it into our hearts, by which it trembles into our lungs till it becomes our breath and our blood and our bone so we may grow rich in hope. It may control the aspect of our perspective as we look to our futures. May that hope, God, richly express itself outward in care and love so we don't have to worry about ourselves. We can worry about other people as we know that you're taking care of us you can take care of others. So let this be, this biblical dynamic, this spiritual logic. God may take hold of our lives, for we gave ourselves to it. Maker of our beings, Savior of our souls, Almighty God, who leads us and guides us always. We say this, God, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.